All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Spotlight series where we highlight uh, innovators, entrepreneurs, and ecosystem supporters that have been building our startup ecosystem. Today, we are talking with Wes Murray and Becca Self of Hunsicker Venture Studio. So we're gonna be diving into the Venture Studio model, the Kentucky Advantage, uh, and what it's been like to build that here in Lexington, Kentucky. So before we dive into that conversation, we just wanna get a quick word from our sponsors. Before highlighting our sponsors, we'd just like to state that the views and content shared on this platform do not necessarily reflect those of our show sponsors. Middle Tech is presented by KY Innovation, the Kentucky Cabinet for Economic Development's Office of Entrepreneurship. KY Innovation exists to support and develop Kentucky's startup ecosystem, and we are proud to be supported by an organization whose mission aligns so closely with ours. If you're a founder building in Kentucky, you need to check out the resources that KY Innovation has to offer. You can find more information by clicking the link in our show notes or going to kyinnovation.com. MiddleTech is sponsored by Bolt Marketing. Take your website to the next level with a website that's built to work. At Bolt Marketing, they're revolutionizing websites for small businesses that are affordable, customizable, and hassle-free. Whether you have a construction company, a boutique clothing store, or you own a hot yoga studio, they have options for you. Click the link in our show notes to explore their marketing options that can transform your marketing and grow your business. And as a personal note, Bolt Marketing built our website and they were awesome to work with throughout the entire process. We highly recommend working with them. All right, Wes, Becca, thank you guys so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, Becca, I know you said this is your first podcast, yeah. so we're honored to uh, have you on here for the first time. And Wes, welcome on to Middle Tech. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So we want to start off by just talking about your all's backgrounds uh, real quick before we dive into Huntsicker and the Venture Studio model. Um, so Becca, we'll start with you. Um, just high level, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at Huntsicker. All right. Um, I'm a native Lexingtonian. I grew up uh, downtown Lexington on Upper Street. So been here, seen a lot of things over the years. Um, and I've spent almost the entirety of my professional career in the nonprofit sector. So I was actually a classroom teacher for seven years and then segued into the nonprofit uh, 501c3 world and ended up founding Food Chain in 2011, um, which works to connect community with fresh food um, and then did another one during the pandemic, Nourish Lexington, um, and have found my way through a circuitous route um, in getting introduced to Wes um, to today to working with Hunsaker. And I wanted to give a, a shout out to West Six too. I, I made the connection that you're married to Ben, uh, who is the founder of West Six as well. So you yep. guys have just got all sorts of cool stuff going on in Lexington. A lot of, lot of irons in the fire. A lot of irons in the fire. That's yep. awesome though. That's cool to hear. Uh, and Wes, tell us a little bit about your background. You've got all sorts of stuff going on around here as well. Yeah. So not a native Lexingtonian. Uh, made my way uh, south here through different jobs in school, but uh, grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, rural community. Uh, called Lancaster, which is very, uh, very similar to Lexington. So that's what kind of makes Lexington feel like home. And um, grew up in a uh, family who was very entrepreneurial itself. So my grandfather started his own businesses, my dad did, and sort of was steeped in that from a pretty young age. Uh, a lot of manual labor growing up, uh, a lot of free manual labor. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but went to school um, in Pennsylvania, I graduated in 01 and um, couldn't get a job because there was this thing called the dot-com crash. And uh, my grandfather said, don't worry, I've got a job for you. Uh, handed me a digging iron and a shovel and spent my summer in a ditch uh, laying water and sewer line, which was all the motivation I needed uh, to find my, uh, find my first job. Uh, and then moved to Baltimore, traveled the country from there doing all sorts of consulting work 
in the transportation logistics space, then went to grad school, um, and ended up in Lexington via a few other opportunities in 2010, and started out in a hedge fund, uh, ended up building or resurrecting a distillery with a, with a partner, and uh, launching a brand, which is a lot of fun. And then all the while, I uh, got to meet Becca uh, in my time here, was always very impressed with her work, um, entrepreneurial in her own right. You know, starting two nonprofits is arguably harder, I think, than doing a startup. And uh, when the, the time came, when, then I exited Castle and Key, uh, I reached out to her and uh, we started this conversation that would become Hunsaker. Awesome. And I know we're keeping backgrounds high level. We'll have to let the DevelopLex guys really dig into the Castle and Key and the Manchester project. Um, but I think it is just awesome to call out all the different things that you've uh, had your hand in here in the city. Um, but before we dive directly into Hunsicker, I want to talk about just the venture studio model. Uh, you had a blog on your website called at a bird's eye view. Um, and I thought that was just really cool to dive into how a venture studio really works, what differentiates it. And you even had some data in there as well to kind of support the thesis for, um, you know, using a venture studio to, to start new ideas. Um, so let's just talk about that from, from a high level, uh, starting, starting off, what is a venture studio? All right. Um, okay. So a venture studio, I would say is not, uh, the newest of concepts, perhaps internationally, but definitely new, I think to the ecosystem here in central Kentucky, um, which is really exciting. Um, having been on the periphery of seeing sort of the start startup entre entrepreneurial ecosystem, um, begin to evolve. But I think it's the next evolution between incubators, accelerators, this idea of, okay, if we have, dollars, if we have um, investments, how can we both de-risk those by having a heavier hand in involvement for those startups, but also where is efficiency in that? So not just what kind of support can be provided, but if we're, if we're actively participating in that kind of co-founding of the startups, what, what collective energy can be gained from the, that portfolio um, uh, company synergy? Um, what kind of um, benefits can be done through them learning together? Uh, where can our insights and the Kentucky-specific um, assets be leveraged? Uh, there's just a lot of, I think, really smart ways of modeling that with the Venture Studio, kind of combining all the best pieces um, that have, have grown naturally into a way um, that can hopefully produce really exciting, innovative startups in the best, uh, most scalable manner. Yeah, and I think the cool thing about Venture Studios that people might not be aware of is that the ideas originate in the Venture Studio and then you guys go out and find the entrepreneur or the founder to come in and help build that idea. Yeah. Um, which I think is just a really cool thing because you guys are able to take a look at your networks, take a look at the ecosystem that you're in, all these different factors and then discover what is this idea, what is this problem that we wanna set out solving. Um, so the first part of it that I really want to dive into that you guys talked a lot about on your website was that problem discovery that, you know, in the blog, I like the way you guys laid it out. You just, it's not the most sexy part of starting a company, but it's a very essential part to really dig into what the problem is. So let's start by just talking about that phase of idea discovery. Um, what, what is kind of that process look like for finding the problem and evaluating the problem? Yeah, and we like to talk about like we're we're well aware of lots of problems. You know, you can see them every day in your everyday life. But um, being aware of a problem and actually having some sort of edge to 
solve it or bring a solution to it, I think is a better way to say it. Um, that's a completely different story. And that's where we really leverage sort of our backgrounds as well as where our networks sort of lead us. And that is, you know, and so a lot of our focus areas in, within Hunsicker are, are based in that. And then, you know, there's a whole process that we go into from taking a problem and try to continually narrow it down, build constraints around it, and then, then start that ideation process. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, like, I mean, I just want to jump to solutions quickly all the time. It's like, um, well, that's, that's the fun part. But quite often when you do that, if you're starting in too big of a sandbox, uh, the challenge with that is that, you know, your solution could be off in the wrong corner. Um, but if you really begin to shrink that sandbox down and then geographically shrink it and then get into an even smaller sort of ICP, what we call our ideal customer profile, which then can be further segmented down into a fraction of that and work with the smallest marketable segment of, of that problem to build an MVP around, now let's innovate. Like, let's build and scale from there. And that gets really exciting. So that's that's sort of the evolution we go through. And then our goal is when the studio is like, we want to bring um, a bunch of vetted concepts to the point where they're not totally formalized so that when we do bring a founder in, they feel like they have uh, a part in crystallizing the solution so that they can passionately and emotionally attach to it. Because otherwise, what you end up doing is you end up hiring an operator, right? And that's a completely different model. Um, and one that, you know, was, you know, is, you know, that's not ideal for us because, you know, we want someone who's in it for the long haul. It's still a journey. Uh, but, you know, they have to feel like they have enough attachment to the ultimate solution that gets generated. Yeah. And I'm sure that is kind of walking a fine line. And that also plays into the equity split that that would happen with starting a company out of a venture studio, too, because it's not, you know, it's a partnership now. And you guys are also funding that at the same time. And I also want to I love what you're saying about narrowing down that idea to kind of give it more direction rather than just being this big, wide kind of sandbox, because you can you can kind of lose your path almost or you, you're going to start wondering, um, especially in the early days when you're trying to, you know, trying to figure out who your customer actually is. Um, but let's move on to the next part, which uh, I was reading into, and that's just you know how you guys provide support in terms of your networks, uh, in terms of funding, all of those sorts of things. Um, so talk about that dynamic. I'm sure the most obvious one that people think of is the funding part of it, um, but I'm sure that's also one of the more basic parts of it. Um, so to, to from your perspective, what is the most valuable type of support that you're typically providing these entrepreneurs when they come in and, and help you run one of these ideas? Um. I, so I think kind of going back to the model of what a venture studio is and how it differentiates between an accelerator or an incubator, um, there is something pretty special about not necessarily, or unique, about not necessarily starting with a founder who's already wedded to their, you know, their, their baby. Um, and as a, as a founder, um, albeit in the nonprofit sector, there's a, there's a real affinity um, in that case, and that can create blind spots um, and, you know, a, a sort of just desperate need to um, create that vision that was originally, you know, captured your energy and, and drives you. Uh, so, I, you know, there's, there's lots of support services that I think from that efficiency angle that a, a venture studio can provide. Uh, but I think that objectivity 
is another really valuable element of it. Um, we've talked a lot um, as we try to figure out our our verbiage and how do we describe not only what what venture studios do, but also what is Hunsaker's unique angle on it of you know the angle of the vector, right? Like Wes was just saying, of you've got to you have to start narrow, and geography is really important to us. So also having that um, uh, the context of the region that we're operating in. Um, but I think they're part of the the um, secret sauce of a venture studio is also the fact that we're we as the co-founders in the in this on the studio team can serve as almost like like um, bumpers in the lane, right? So we we sort of set the the vector direction, right? So that you're not you find yourself, you know, a year down the road, like, whoops, we meant to go in this direction, but as we extrapolated out, it went in a, in a different, um, but also can, 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 can provide a little bit of flexibility um, so that you don't miss something as you're going along because you have these blinders on driving down. I mean, in addition to that, also helping a, a, a founder not be distracted by some of the stuff that they don't need to be reinventing the wheel every time, right? So, uh, there's all kinds of commonalities in in creating a startup between payroll and UX design. Like there's just a there's a lot of those sorts of elements. But I think the um, objective but also passionate support of those the studio team is a really valuable um, value prop for those founders to keep from getting too insular and too wedded to like oh this is perfect in my you know, the group that I'm surrounded by are also passionate advocates. And so you just kind of lose your, you lose your perspective. It's something I know in, in my background um, of, it's very easy to get lost in that wood, right? Because you surround yourself with champions um, and then you can miss things along the road. So I think that's a, that's a real benefit of the venture studio model and certainly something that I think our kind of disparate backgrounds um, provides a, a valuable addition piece. Yeah. I mean, the founder journey, um, is having done it a, a few times is can sometimes be pretty lonely, right? And there's a, it's a mixture of, of a lot of action followed by a lot of insecurity. Uh, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right next step? And part of the beauty of the venture studio model is you're surrounding, um, that individual with, um, not necessarily people who have all gone through a startup process, but who understand um, and appreciate the startup journey and also what makes a great company. Uh, also, one thing that we can help founders and, and we do help founders with is, you know, there's this desire to always have like the first version of your product just be badass, right? It's got all these bells and whistles and you want the first time that someone uses it to just be blown away. But the reality is, is, you know, you can do a lot in a very short amount of time with very little money um, to validate the, uh, whether you should spend real money or not. And um, we spend a lot of time looking at customer sort of uh, nonverbal reactions to products and services that we propose, less about like the words that they use. It kind of like it's like a, a, a weird NPS score yeah. for 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 a startup. If it's sort of like not interested, well, thank you, but they don't ever say that. Or well, yeah, that's okay, that's interesting. 
versus, um, hey, um, is this available like now? Is this real? Can I buy this? And, you know, that's 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 the mark you're looking for and trying to spend as little money as possible to achieve that is the most critical thing that a startup can do and what you know we as a venture studio can really help that founder navigate and feel confident and uh, make it okay right because there's just all these external pressures i don't want to disappoint my investors i don't want to disappoint my friends there's just so many external pressures that that a, that a founder feels that um that i don't think is people truly realize uh, when they go through the startup journey. You know, you guys, you have a space here in Lexington, which we also need to talk about. You know, you've, you've got this really cool space that people can actually work out of. But when the entrepreneur is in there, are you guys involved in the day-to-day -day helping them test and iterate and meet customers? And are you a part of that process intimately? You know, how does that dynamic and that relationship work between the entrepreneur and the venture studio? Yeah, so like we said, we're the we're the sort of the generator of the what we call the vetted business concept. We've done enough about it or know enough about it that it it feels comfortable. Um, and then um, Becca's term, like we think of it like bumpers in a bowling alley, right? We're there to make sure that the ball is rolling down and knocking down pins, right? And we have a pretty good idea of what those pins should be at each stage. I mean, it's a pretty we call it a playbook. It's pretty robust. Um, and there's you know things that we want to see done. There's profiles. There's unit economics. There's all these all these steps that we want to and boxes you should check as you're going along along the way. That if you're a founder by yourself, you know you may get through a mentorship session, or you know or or especially if you're a first time founder, you may read in a book. Well, our book is like you know a bunch of business books, you know like crammed into like one document. Uh, and, and a bunch of and a spreadsheet that kind of says, this is the five things you should be really focused on for where you are today. And so, yeah, we, we help them. We identify um, uh, where we think there's gaps. But I think the most valuable thing that we do is we connect them with customers. You know, Logan, you and I were talking about it the other day, like the most valuable thing a, a startup needs at the beginning are customers who represent the uh, ideal buyer that they can speak with and get honest, direct feedback. And without that, you're kind of doing the field of dreams approach, right? I'm gonna build it and here it is and oh shit, <laughs> no one came, right? Versus no, you've been working and building this with a customer who is the user or or will will ultimately purchase the product uh, when it is ready. And that to me is, is, is sort of some of the secret sauce that we provide at Huntsicker. I love that. and. I want to tie that into kind of URL's regional advantage that you wrote about in the Kentucky Advantage blog that's on URL's site. But before that, I want to tell the anecdote of, with our company and how much that resonates with me to really be getting feedback from your customer as you're building it. You know, when when the company was first founded, the founder talked to I think like 200 different potential customers of what are your actual pain points, what would help you solve them. Does this sound like a solution that would actually be valuable? To your point of you know you can't just be building it and hoping that somebody is going to need it. It's like uh, you build a hammer and you're just looking for a nail everywhere. Um, and then, you know, we had our big pivot that really sprung our company even further forward was we had a customer actually see what we'd built and be like, that's interesting. We want to use it in this way. And that has been the most valuable thing because not only did they say that, but they're like, okay, we love your platform, but if it did this in this way and that in this way, 
and they informed how we built this kind of second generation of our product. And without that, I honestly don't know where our company would be. Like, I don't know if we'd still be in business without that feedback from that customer. So I think that's probably, I think I look at that as one of the most important things that you can do in an early stage company is get feedback from those who are going to be using your, your product. Um, but to move into this regional part of, of the Hunsicker model specifically, you guys are based in Lexington, you're based in Kentucky. You both have very robust networks here. Talk about how that plays into how you guys help these uh, entrepreneurs and these founders that you bring in to run the ideas, how that all plays into the types of ideas that you pursue and the types of customers you try and you know put them in front of. Um, well, as the I guess as the native Kentuckian, I can start on that. Um, you know, being from Kentucky, I think oftentimes we have a chip on our shoulder of um, the uh, the other the other expectations that people might place on us when they when they hear where we're from. Um, and I've had, you know, an opportunity to travel a lot in my life. I went to MIT. I have a lot of, I've lived in, in many other places. Um, and as a strong Kentuckian, I typically um, uh, chafe, I would say, a bit at that, at that Kentucky, um, uh, you know, stigma. But what's really interesting about Kentucky is I think it is, it's actually, it is um, highly representative of a lot of the neighborly connectiveness of far more regions than the Silicon Valleys, the Bostons, the Manhattans. Um, uh, and yes, we absolutely have uh, deep networks. And I think that is not really just a testament of us, but actually to the to the region itself. Um, you know, I in in staying connected with alumni um, and talking to people who live around the country, I think, and this was played out every day with creating Food Chain and Nourish Lexington later, you know, I don't have any special last name. I don't have a, you know, some kind of, you know, card that I can flash somewhere. But overwhelmingly, people, I think, in Kentucky, Kentucky want to be helpful. Um, and in so many cases, they're just tired of being thought of as not worthy of participating in that. Um, one of the taglines that we have on our website is out of the ordinary. Um, and I, I think that that, you know, yes, it's a fun pun on, you know, excellence, but I think that ordinary is part of our secret sauce. Um, the fact that it, it doesn't take long to get connected to, you know, to speak directly to the person in charge, um, to find, it's not six degrees of separation, it's two degrees of separation, right? Um, uh, yeah, at best. Um, and that is a real asset. Um, and I think particularly when it comes to determining true jobs to be done, um, real needs as opposed to, well, I'm over here in my you know startup world and where are areas that need uh, disruption and what's going to scale really quickly, you you catch a certain stratosphere of those those um, problems or those challenges. And yet the the ones that are impacting a whole lot of people on a daily life fall below that skim. Um, and so you have to, you do have to get down face to face. You have to break bread. You have to share a drink. Um, and thankfully doing this kind of work in this region, people like doing that. Um, sure. And they, they do want to be part of, I mean, I think it's human nature to want to be part of a winning team, 
Um, but by and large, I think Kentucky wants to be helpful as well. Um, and we're used to waiting for outside sources to validate our assets, right? So we make great bourbon. How do we know? Because other people want it. Um, our basketball is fabulous. How do we know? Because they do well in the national tournament. Um, there's a there's an external validation that we've come to rely on. And I think the for me, what makes it so exciting to be pursuing this here in this region is no one from the outside is saying, hey, you should really be doing this. Like it's a, it's an opportunity to say, actually, we already have these assets. And there's tons of industries that are not just thriving in Kentucky, but are are we can stand as the representation for regions around the globe um, where we're just overlooked. So uh, to me, that's maybe this is just the kind of um, tired of being dismissed mentality. Um, but for me, the the other side of the coin is far more appealing. Like, wow, what a way to um, defy those expectations. Uh, and again, it's we're not starting from zero. Like, there's tremendous assets to to leverage. Um, so that's, I think, I think I just think Kentucky is primed for that. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit on so many valuable things throughout throughout all of that. And it really resonates with me just with middle tech, um, especially the Kentucky, just wanting to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it started for us. We were 22, 23 when we started this. And we, we were just so fascinated that, like, Lexington, Kentucky has some sort of startup scene. It's like maybe it's not what it could be. Maybe it's not what it should be yet. But, like, we want to be helpful. We want to tell stories. We want to connect people. And it's been very gratifying to be able to play some sort of a role in that. And uh, Wes, you had a, a quote on one of the blogs I kind of want to paraphrase and, and get into because I think it just really encapsulates what is so true about Kentucky's ecosystem. And it, it goes something along the lines of uh, there's a difference between an ecosystem and a network. Uh, proximity doesn't always equal access. And I think that's just very wise. And it's very indicative of the way Kentucky's ecosystem really is. It's like, yeah, we're all, we have the proximity for sure. But you also have the access. Everyone, like you said, wants to help. They want to connect to you. They're like, oh, I know this person who knows this person. Let's figure out a way to get you in there. There's not nearly as many gatekeepers as you might run into in like a New York or Silicon Valley. Um, so I want you to, to tell a story about like an actual idea you guys are working on and how you've been kind of using your network and your experience to do that with uh, the, the idea that we talked about with um, staffing in the machining and labor industry. So Kind of talk about how that came to be and how your network played into that. Yeah, sure. So um, when we talked earlier about, you know, how we identify a problem where we feel like we have some sort of edge, you know, obviously it's common knowledge that there is a need for more people in the trades, skilled labor, right? And and we talk about this, you see articles out there and there's 9 million open jobs and a lot of them are in, in these particular fields. Um, but, uh, but there's not really any real, I don't know, solutions coming forward that seem to address this, right? And it just so happened um, that at the same time we were launching Hunsicker, um, another company that we own is a machining company based in Nicholasville. And, um, in the process of like, we don't, I don't run that company. I, there's other people who do that, but I'm very versed into the challenge that they're facing. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, you know, this is a very real experience. Like they're having a hard time finding machinists. And first of all, I didn't even really know what a machinist was when we started looking at this business. And as I began to learn more and more about it, it, it became more and more fascinating to me. Like, 
why are people not choosing this career path, right? Why is this position so hard to fill? And, um, and that this led us down this road of like, well, wait a minute, is this company an N equals one problem, which we talk about that a lot. Is this a problem that is only affecting or is only really relevant to this particular customer? Or is it more broadly speaking, a problem that's affecting a lot of, a lot of customers in the same sector or industry? Well, we kind of knew the answer to that, right? Because of the whole, like, we need more skilled labor, but we still went through the process of, of asking that question. And so from, from that company and its network, because we were able to tap it, we were able to reach out to other people uh, regionally and even nationally. And then through our own networks, we were able to, to talk to people both regionally and nationally and received all this, all this really compelling uh, data. We call them jobs to be done, which is, um, you know, you know, the, the, the simplest way to think about that is you go to Home Depot and you buy a quarter inch drill, but that's not really what they're buying. They're buying a quarter inch hole, right? That's the job they need done, but just so happens it gets done by this quarter inch drill, because that's what Home Depot sells. And, um, you know, in the case of our world, like they were hiring individuals, yes, but they needed people who are passionate about, you know, running these really cool machines, making these really cool parts. And like, so that, that that's the job we need done, right? And so how do we how do we find those and attract those individuals? So yeah, so the first company that we'll launch later this year will be in this space. And we've picked the machining industry. It's very narrow. It's not a huge, huge market, but um, we want to learn there, uh, which is attracting people in on the one side who we think um, would make good machinists and then um, um, connecting them with companies of, of which there are many throughout Kentucky who are looking to hire machinists of all different types of levels. And so we're sort of disrupting two areas at the same time. One is sort of training and education um, by creating a pathway that doesn't necessarily take two or more years to complete. And at the same time, disrupting the recruiting channel, right? So what was really fascinating is our machining company was really struggling. They're using all your traditional services, Indeed, ZipRecruiter, Blue Recruit, there's like hundreds of job boards out there, but it's like, I don't know, fishing for a trout at the mouth of the Mississippi. I mean, like, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you're going to get all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> a weird analogy, but that's the problem with these sites, you know, and, and yeah, you're getting a lot of, you know, you're pulling a lot of fish out, but none of them are a trout, right? And that's kind of the problem. Um, and so, uh, they would turn to recruiters and the recruiter industry is so fascinating that, you know, the fees can be upwards of, you know, 20, 25% of first year's compensation. Um, and really the only thing they're doing is curating your top of funnel. It's not like they're handing and saying that person can go run a Mori 95 and they know how to do programming in both Siemens and Heidenheim and all this other different stuff that's very particular in the machining industry. They're just saying, this person works in a machine shop. They've worked in a machine shop for three or four years and they're willing to relocate, which basically feels like they did an internet search for this individual. And I'm not even sure some of these individuals know that they're being curated on their for on their behalf, right? And you're like, well, wait, there's gotta be a better way, right? There's gotta be a better, more systematic way that creates predictability for both the person seeking the job um, as well as for the employer who, quite frankly, is offering pretty compelling employment opportunity, which includes it's well-paid, benefits, retirement, 
Um, and a lot of these places operate with a pretty flexible environment like four tens, which is pretty attractive to a younger generation today. And so we sort of package all this up and partner that with a founder and, and work on like the language, you know, it's a two-sided marketplace. How do we both reach um, employers seeking these individuals? How do we identify, recruit, and pull in those individuals who may con consider this career path? And what are some of the roadblocks stopping them from going down that way today? And uh, yeah, and so that's that's what our studio does. And we partner together and we shepherd that um, this this business concept, this idea through to a point where, you know, ideally, but when we go to launch this thing later this year, we probably have five or six, you know, POs on the books for X number of individuals and make it, you know, a really cool event where you're ARR positive out of the gate. Man, and that is, that's a significant thing. VARR positive right out of the right. gate. Absolutely. That's, that's such a huge advantage for, for an entrepreneur as well. Um, and something else that I was kind of thinking as we're talking through the, you know, building these ideas out within the same studio, what does it look like once you guys get several ideas kind of running at the same time? Do you have multiple entrepreneurs that are within your all space, like all kind of feeding off each other's energy? I mean, just talk about that doesn't have to be a super in-depth part of the conversation, but I am curious you know, once you have multiple ideas, do you guys try to, you know, find ideas that are synergistic of one another? Is it, how does that side of, of the model work? Yeah. Ideally we like to play in the same, um, sector sandbox for as long as, cause you're, you know, you know, so we're, we're specifically focused around, you know, training and recruiting. And so you would like to find corollary opportunities, right? Because there's going to be there's going to be that symbiosis that happens between the companies. Sometimes that happens and sometimes that do doesn't. Beck and I were working on a, on a solution around um, loyalty, right? There's a, there's high turnover rates, which there could be a lot of reasons for that. But one of the ones that we seem to be keying in on is the fact that employees may, may just be less loyal to their employer. You know, they're not able to build that relationship with them or that connection with them that they once had. And so how do you solve that? The problem for us on that particular idea and why we sort of paused on it is we don't yet have an edge to really be able to go in and attack that in an effective way. Sure, we can go around and, and beat the drum, but it's not going to be as effective with our time, right? And so um, in that particular case, we'll, we'll just move into a different sector or a different, different idea. But yes, definitely the, the founders can feed off each other. They can co-solve co problems. Um, due to the nature that these happen on a continuous basis, right? So founder one comes in and they're working on a particular solution for six months. And then, you know, founder two spins up. And so there's this gap in stage of where they are, right? And so there's, um, there's a little bit of mentorship that can happen right, right there. Um, we try to be careful. Our goal is not to have any more than like four at a time. You know, we're not at four today, but we don't really want to get to more than four at a time because it's we're a little concerned about the chaos from our side of being able to so. support that. Um, you know, other studios run a lot more than that simultaneously. You know, we're a team of five today, okay. right? You know, when we get to a point where you know, so forth, where the where the economics allow us to have maybe a team of ten or more, then we can we can up the number of companies that uh, that we have at one time. And to double click on that point, uh, you mentioned a team of five. What exactly? What types of roles are you hiring for? What What does a team at a venture studio actually look like, and what are their functions? How are they helping the entrepreneurs that are building these these companies? 
I'll tell you, it, there's not a one answer to that question. Probably a lot of generalists. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's generalists, and then based on the venture studio, there's all kinds of verticals, right? So, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things of getting Hunsaker going is there there is not yet a consolidated like this is the way to go. Um, there's certainly some best practices to, of on which to glean, um, but I don't think. I don't think the data is solid yet of like, oh yes, this is an org chart that needs to exist. Um, you know, there are some commonalities, particularly in the way that we have structured it where we are more generalist in the sense of we're not, we don't already prescribe, like we know that our solution is gonna be of SaaS play, right? Or we know we are only sticking to FinTech, right? Like there are, and there are plenty of venture studios out there who are very, very narrow. Um, and that is more of kind of a copy-paste um, uh, model, which is fine. It's just not what we're, what we're after. Um, and because of that, you, you wear a lot of hats, right? So you're, you're, you're sort of, um, I mean, from the ideation phase, you've got to bring in a lot of data. You're, if you're being involved in creating the concept from the beginning, there's an enormous amount of discovery, right? Those, that validation, that interview uh, bit, is a it's a complicated process, but it also opens up the way we've gone about it is really focusing pretty heavily on system mapping. Right? So when we're trying to understand a sandbox of looking at who are all the players and how do they interact currently? And the advantage of that, I think, is, is that, you know, it's up on a whiteboard, it's up on a Figma board, like, oh, what's happening in, in this little point here? Um, which is a different way of solving a problem than like, oh my gosh, I've been stamping widgets for 20 years. And if somebody could just figure out a better widget stamper, then my life would be better, right? Not That's a, a valid way of creating a company. Um, but ours is, I think, much more systematic in, in the sense of like, where are the friction points? Talking to those individuals who are in those roles, but also kind of looking at that big big picture at the same time. Um, so there, there is, you know, there are some, some general categories, right? We know we have to provide support around business development, around from a fundraising standpoint, from a finance acumen standpoint, um, from an administrative standpoint, right? Of helping have the, you know, provide the playbook, like Wes said. Um, but with the bumper analogy, which we keep kind of going back to, it's the founder who's providing, providing that momentum forward, right? So we can we can help make sure that we're, you know, steering. It's almost like you're tilting the lane a little bit, but that forward momentum has to be driven by that founder. Um, and so whatever we can do to help support, right, make it downhill um, as much as possible, that we have to kind of be ready to either find that hat internally, externally. There's a lot of opportunities of fractionalizing components, taking advantage of other experts, which is exciting because it, you know, you can, magnify the expertise that you have um, and can surround those founders with, um, but also building kind of what are the what are the common pieces. And I do think while we don't have a really simple um, or narrow field like you know, B2B SaaS uh, companies, I, th I think one of the common themes that is coming around is we're very focused on relational businesses. Um, and so it may not sound like, you know, it's not a job uh, title, I think, that is common, but, like, everybody's in the studio team needs to understand that relational component. 
um, and and t helping founders understand how that relationship piece is going to play out in the success of that business. Um, it can leverage technology. It can you know utilize machine learning, AI, all of those different components. But at the end of the day, you've got a customer that you need to have a conversation with. Um, and how do you make eye contact? <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds really simple, but those those pieces are ultimately also what matters in that company's success. Absolutely. And you, you hit on something there briefly that uh, made me think of another question. That's the dynamic of fundraising with with these companies, too. So you mentioned you're, you know, you're providing them funding as they kind of get the idea off the ground. Uh, but once you get a, an idea that's like, OK, this has interest from the actual customers, what happens with fundraising after that? Do you guys fully fund like the all the way through the seed stage and then series A, you start searching for outside fundraising? Are you involved in the fundraising? Do you let the entrepreneur handle that? What does that whole dynamic look like once it gets to that point? Yeah, I mean, and so that's another advantage of our model. And it's just, this is more common with studios is that uh, I would say this is more of the common thread um, where the fundraising... Um, it be, sort of takes a back seat at the very beginning, which is really important for the founder, right? And the, and us as a team. And so, you know, our model is a stage gate model where capital is continually unlocked as uh, certain predefined milestones that are unique to that company are achieved, right? And that's just a gating system to protect um, both um, our time and the founder's time, as well as our investor's capital, but, you know, there's, you know, we're actually trying to determine what the upper limit of what our investment in any one company would be right now. We feel very comfortable uh, investing up to a million dollars in any one company. And then, you know, ideally that gets them beyond the seed stage or somewhere in between a seed and a series A, depending on what the company is. Um, and, you know, uh, we would then, you know, be with them on that journey of filling out the next round. Part of the model too is we will help them socialize their their business pretty much from day one with a set of regional venture firms so that you know when they are ready to take a bigger tranche of capital you know the the <laughs> this isn't the first time right that the the venture capital firms have seen them right this is the third or fourth or hopefully even fifth time um, and they know about their business and they're excited about the business. And that makes it so much easier. Again, it's, you know, to Becca's point, it's very relational and that it's a Kentucky, it's a Kentucky thing and we need to lean into it more. Yeah. And as you're talking about some of the, some of the ways that you're kind of supporting the entrepreneur along the way, you know, that one, for example, with fundraising, you know, as an, as an entrepreneur, you want to be developing relationships with VCs before you actually want to fundraise. Like you want to be like, Hey, I'm building this. I'm going to keep you up to date with it. Maybe add you to my newsletter, all of those sorts of things. And it seems like if an entrepreneur didn't know that you guys are just kind of building that in automatically for him. And it makes me think, okay, well, what types of entrepreneurs or what types of personality types or what, how do you find the actual founders that are coming in and doing this? Cause I'm sure that alone is probably a really challenging part to it. Finding the person that you want to take this idea that you have that you've incubated and take it to the next stage. How do you do that? Uh, I think you uh, foster as many relationships as possible. Um, it might sound trite, um, but I think part of attracting good founders is putting yourself out there and constantly um, relaying the message of we're, we are not just looking for good founders, but want to partner with good founders. And I think the, the co-founder model is important 
um, there are great founders who are not going to be excited about the, the idea of co-founding. And that's totally fine. There's tons of places for them to go. Um, so it, it's a special type of, of founder, I think, that, that really thrives and blooms in a studio. It's interesting, there, there have been a lot of studies of kind of, you know, as more and more uh, studios have been formed and have track records now, in many cases, to Wes's point earlier, it is second time or third time founders who end up in studios because they realize how lonely um, of, of a route it is to go alone. Um, and can see more clearly some of those benefits. But I'll say, you know, outside of do we have similar affinity, right? Are we interested in the same areas? Um, you know, there's common traits, I think, of founders of uh, just determination, persistence, um, uh, just driven. Um, I, I think part of the thing that excites me about Hunsaker and our our wider lens of what could be a, a, a company coming out of our studio is I think we also are going to appeal to people who might not first be the one with their hand up of, I am a founder. Mm. Um, you know, we just recently had an opportunity to go to Indianapolis. They had, there was a rally conference there around, you know, all kinds of different people in the innovation space, right? Founders, uh, investors, entrepreneurial ecosystem sort of stuff. And in numerous workshops, um, the speakers would say, oh, you know, raise, trying to get a sense of who's in the room. Raise your hand if you're a founder. And it was really interesting to me um, being not necessarily new to the founder space, but new to this kind of entrepreneurial identification um, to see where people put their hand. Like this is goes back to my teacher days. Like, do you raise your hand like this or do you raise your hand like this, right? <laughs> Um, and it was fascinating to see the, okay, their hands up automatically. All right. I get that. You know, you, you're, um, you have a strong image in your mind of like, I've got this idea. I'm ready to pursue it till the end of time. But particularly when you're looking for in, you know, systems of where are there sticky points that no, maybe they're not as sexy or appealing, or really someone hasn't just come along and asked you what job needs to be done here. There's an enormous amount of expertise there. And in, in many cases, I think there's there can be a nudge. And in some cases, that nudge is just finding out that that opportunity exists, that you have expertise and gumption that could be used as a founder, right? You don't necessarily have to be the one in the front of the class saying, I'm a founder, I'm a founder, just looking for my idea. But rather, it can be cultivated, too. I would think there's certain common traits, like I already mentioned, but... Um, to me, that is an even further motivation of you you never know where you're gonna meet people, right? And who you're gonna be talking to, that it clicks some some your toggles will switch over, um, particularly around passion areas, which is definitely what gets me excited about the the work that we're doing, is it's not just like, okay, who's you know, where well, what's the next photo sharing app? No shade to photo sharing. Um, I should really stop using that as an example, but you know, that that isn't necessarily going to be that same purpose-driven focus that that will be a, a synergistic um, fit in Hunsaker. So I think that founder identification, we talk a lot about attracting talent. You, you have to be a magnet in order to attract. Um, it's not a passive activity. Um, so hopefully, you know, in communicating, clearly we talk a lot. I, I talk a lot. Um, I think that's part of the role. Right. You can't people can't find you if you're not out there talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the perfect transition to where I wanted to 
take the next part of this conversation, which was around, you know, creating positive impact and being purpose-driven because you had some, some uh, blogs about that on your website too. So I wanted to bring that part of it up and it's obvious that you're very passionate about it because that's where your entire background is, is in nonprofits and, you know, making a positive impact. So as it relates to Hans Sicker, what is your all's thesis on that? What's your, uh, what's your model for making that happen? Um, so I'll tie, I'll, it'll, it might seem like I'm dodging that question. I promise I'm not part of the, I think the excitement in, um, forming Hunsaker and the, the different paths that Wes and I have taken to get here, um, which might seem from the outside sort of, um, haphazard that this would be a combination in, in founding Hunsaker. Um, there was a lot of shared frustration. I think that was it when our, we looked at our Venn diagrams of like what motive, I think we're both very driven, um, very passionate individuals, but one of the kind of the, the overlapping spaces was a sense of frustration in that there is more to be done. Um, from the nonprofit sector, um, you know, we, we are a litter with people who care a whole hell of a lot. Um, I'd put myself in that same category, um, which is great. You know, we've got passion for days. And yet we're stuck in this sort of arbitrary, um, indebted, non-sustainable <laughs> financial cycle. And that financial cycle hampers innovation, right? It, there's just no way around it. You are beholden to a grant cycles, to philanthropic uh, tones, um, to the overall charitable pulse of whether, you know, what what is trendy, what is, what is um, appealing right now, who do you know? You know, there's just all kinds of ways in which your finances, which is, I mean, nonprofits are no different than for-profits. That is how you run a business, right? Um, so, uh, but because of that sort of broken down cycle, it really, really throttles um, pushing beyond the norms, right? So you've got these huge problems that society has decided, oh, that's, that's so big, we need either governments or nonprofits to solve those. And yet we're not gonna give them the tools that meanwhile over here, we're creating this in remarkably sharp um, uh, you know, abilities around startup venture acceleration, right? So like business creation, testing, uh, go-to-market strategy, all this really cool, efficient, highly effective uh, business development strategy acumen and we put up a curtain we're like you know what these problems are so important we should not bring those tools to the party it's like totally asinine so clearly i get excited about this but um i to me the opportunity to tear down that curtain right to say hey they're not mutually exclusive it's not an either or it is an and solution so i think you know we have talked at nauseum around what is the right way of describing purpose-driven, impact-derived, like it's not in lieu of profitability, right? It, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> any more, I should say, than, you know, in the nonprofit sector, it's like, well, you can't make money. Well, you have to cite, you have to put it back into the business. It's got to be economically sustainable. It's got to be economically sustainable, but it, it also doesn't have to be threadbare, economically sustainable, or negligible. <laughs> um, so I think for us, the idea of not being afraid to tackle really, really thorny 
problems. Um, and the from a from a business development side, you have an enormous customer base there, right? So if you're if you're not focused in on a, a fringe need over here, right? I I'm sure lots of people need their dog walked, right? And yet, right, if you're looking at how am I going to afford a home, how am I going to, you know, access a career path that will pay me a decent wage and that is best suited for my skill set? Um, how am I going to feed my family quality food and access it? That's not just questions that, you know, the lowest of socioeconomic individuals are struggling with. That is real everyday challenges. And there's nothing about those areas that inherently require government to solve. In fact, I don't think anybody would put that on the list of like, well, they're going to think outside the box, right? Um, so right. <laughs> like the, I, I don't know, to me, it seems like such a no-brainer of we've got tremendous uh, leverage that has been created around startup cultivation. Let's just aim it in a bigger direction. Yeah, I love when we hit on a topic with somebody that just like really gets them going. That's well, definitely one for you. And I love it. I love sorry. it. And that, no, that's so great because it, it tells me why you guys are doing what you're doing, how you're doing it, because you're wanting to attract entrepreneurs that want to do big things. And that's having that mission and putting that out into the world is such a big part of that. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of, I'll call it emotion right now around like the ESG movement and like trying to figure out how can we basically do what you're, what you're saying, solve these giant problems. And I think what we saw with a lot of the ESG investment going on was we're not looking at the economic sustainability of it. Like, is this something that can sustain itself yeah. in a free market? And I know people hate thinking about that when you think about solving really big problems, but it's just part, it's just the reality of it the is. situation. Like you cannot excuse that. And I think we're just getting past this kind of crazy financial craze where you just saw money being dumped into things that didn't have a proven business model. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to have the conversation that you're having of like, yes, we can go and solve giant problems. And yes, it can be done from this perspective, but it has to be done in the right way. Yeah. And I can tell why you're so passionate about it. <laughs> I, I would get very passionate about that too. So that's just such an awesome, uh, awesome way to tie all of that together. And, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about the problems you guys are going after yeah. when, you, when you bring it all back to that. Um, so man, what a, what a great topic there. Glad, glad we got into that part of it. Um, one of the questions we like asking on the spotlight series. So as I mentioned, the purpose of this series is to kind of keep tabs on what's going on in this ecosystem. We want to have people back on through, through the years. Um, so whenever we have you guys back on to talk about Huntsicker in one to two to three years, what are we going to, what are we going to be talking about? What are you guys focused on? What are you wanting to get to here in the next few years? Yeah. I mean, I, I really hope that in one to three years, it's, you know, we've, We've successfully, to Becca's point, proven this idea out that you can launch a company who, uh, whose strategy and mission is the impact you otherwise would like to see, right? Um, you know, even, even in the example we were talking about earlier around, you know, the trades solution, right? Um, that's, that's very intentional. That's, a, that's an upward mobility play, right? whereby you can find yourself in a high paying job without having to go into any kind of school debt, right? And so it's, it, it's about creating new pathways for individuals into careers that are in ridiculously high demand, right? And, you know, they're not being satisfied by the traditional channels. 
And so how do you do that? How do you think completely outside the box um, and, and provide dignity around something versus playing into the stigma of, you know, if you see any of the advertisements around like workforce development and stuff like that, boy, I don't, I, they're not great. Not something you aspire to. Yeah, it's not like, wow, that looks like <laughs> something that I'd like to sign up for. And that honors all my hopes and dreams and everything that I ever thought I possibly could become, right? And that's part of the problem. And so when we we think about those aspects, and so part of part of the hack here of achieving the impact we're looking for is not necessarily to stamp boom, this is an impact company you know, come talk to us is to kind of just do what's right for society and do it in a way that makes people happy and our investors happy too. And we don't think that's just such a big lift. Um, and so, yeah, uh, in, in three years, I shouldn't say we hope, we will prove that out. Like I, I'm so confident in our team that we're building, Becca in particular, um, you know, the, the, we, we've got enough on the whiteboard, right? This is not, we're, we're not short of ideas but the execution of them, that's just going to take a little bit more time and yeah, we'll be there. I love it. Well, it's been an awesome conversation. Thank you both for coming on and sharing what you guys are working on and uh, just for the conversation in general. It's been a really fun one. So before we let you guys go, uh, we just want to make sure our listeners know if they want to follow along with Hunsicker or you two individually, um, where can they find you guys? So tell us what the URL is, social channels, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, so hunsicker.co is our website. All our socials are on the bottom um, and uh, we're both on LinkedIn and and uh, feel free to follow us and reach out if you if ever wanna connect. Uh, as we said, we're, we're relational, we have this office down the street. It's an awesome place to to collaborate in and meet in and um, you know, as we said, Logan, if you ever need a spot to po uh, post up for the afternoon, um, you know, it's, it's a great place to, great place to be. Yeah. I'll be down there soon to check it out, but thanks again. It's been awesome. And until next time. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you.